I've never, in, in all my years as a clinical psychologist, and this is something that really does terrify me, I have never seen anyone ever get away with anything at all, even once. Well, and maybe you disagree. Maybe you think people get away with things all the time. I tell you, I've never seen it. What I see instead is that thing happens, right? They, someone twists the fabric of reality. And they do it successfully because it doesn't snap back at them that moment. And then like two years later, something unravels. And they get walloped and they think, oh my God, that's so unfair. It's, yeah, because you can't twist the fabric of reality without having it snap back. It doesn't work that way. And why would it? Because what are you going to do? Twist the fabric of reality? I don't think so. I think it's bigger than you. Hello and welcome to this, the third instalment of the Essence of Anarchy series. In part one, I propose that anarchism refers to a type of relationship which is consensual and not coercive. Then in part two, I looked at what defines property in order to have a basis for judging whether consent or coercion is taking place. But should we take consent as a foundational good? requiring no further justification. Some of you may answer yes, and think such a thing is self-evident. Others may not be convinced, seeing this position as idealistic. We must acknowledge that such a belief in consent is clearly far from universal. History is replete with examples of people who, believing that they have found the one right way to live, see that all that remains as being to impose that way on everybody else, consent not being required. This one right way may go so far as to dictate every aspect of everyone's lives, or it may exist in a more limited sense, dictating only certain things, like medical, economic and educational choices. Plenty of people would agree that, to varying degrees, Society should be governed by experts who do not require the consent of the governed to act in their best interests. This position has a certain plausibility. Why shouldn't society's smartest people make the big decisions for those of us who are less capable? Should we really want to be anarchists? I am, of course, going to present why I believe this is not the case, and that consent really is a foundational good. I'll do this by working through some examples, but first I want to examine the question in the most fundamental way I can think of. To do so, I'm going to talk about my own intellectual journey with anarchism. I feel I was born with certain anarchic sensibilities. I imagine if you reflect upon it, you might find a similar sense within yourself. I held an innate sense that relationships should be consensual, that our lives are our own to live as we best see fit, and that no one has the right to dictate to others how they should live. As I grew older, the world rushed in with the message that such a position is idealistic and impractical, and pragmatism crept into my mind. In many ways, my journey in studying anarchism has been about recapturing that childlike innocence in a way that rises to meet the challenges the darkness of our world presents. Intellectually, I recall the first time I clearly heard an anarchic sentiment being expressed, when my high school history teacher wrote a definition of liberalism 
on the blackboard, roughly stating that a person has the right to do whatever they wish as long as it does not interfere with the well-being of another person. I remember thinking, yes, I agree with that, as if a position I innately held had suddenly been verbalised. It also occurred to me that society at large only partially held this position and would quickly abandon it as soon as the going got tough. Issues like drug use and assisted suicide were certainly exempted from this liberal anarchic principle. To me it seemed obvious that a principle should be universal and, therefore, maintained in these more difficult cases too. I want to be clear, it's not that I had a callous indifference to the plight of the addicted, or that I was blind to the complexity regarding questions of suicide. In holding that a principle should be applied consistently, I did not feel I was being uncaring towards people struggling with these issues. I felt this was a false dichotomy. To me, it seemed obvious that, once we have established a principle, in this case, that of consent, we should strive to remain within it when confronting the very real problems life presents. I felt strongly that to disregard the principle was to invite even worse consequences. If I examine where this sense arose from, I can discern two aspects. Firstly, there existed for me an awareness of life as a mystery. I knew that I didn't know. What is this thing we are experiencing? How are we best to live in it? I didn't have the answers and certainly wasn't in a position to insist others agree with my opinions. As I grew older, my faith in other people having any answers dwindled also. It seems to me that this sense of mystery must limit my willingness to either act coercively or to support coercive action by others. It also seems that those willing to support coercive actions will tend to have less of this sense of underpinning mystery and more of a sense that they know what life is. Dictators, for example, seem to act from a place of unshakable certainty. It's worth noting that, for most people, directly employing coercion is too much. They don't possess a sufficient level of certainty in the righteousness of their actions. They are much more likely, however, to be prepared to outsource coercion to an authority figure, and thereby offset their responsibility. Many people support drug prohibition. Not so many would be willing to lock up a drug user in a cage themselves. Whilst they implicitly acknowledge that they personally lack the wisdom and authority to do so, they perceive that somebody else, or some group, possesses both the necessary wisdom and authority, and therefore the act becomes morally acceptable. In addition to this sense of mystery, and to the extent I felt I had discerned anything about life, I had the sense of the world as being structured in some orderly and harmonious fashion. I believe I was essentially drawing a spiritual conclusion here. I was attesting to what Jordan Peterson refers to in the opening comment as the fabric of reality. I was asserting the existence of a moral fabric. We find expressions of this in concepts like karma, or sayings like 
what goes around comes around, or you reap what you sow. In the same way the physical world has laws that cannot be ignored, it seemed to me that morals were similarly objective. We could no more make them up than we could fabricate the laws of physics. Is there a theistic implication to this? Does talk of objective morals imply some sort of universal intelligence? A god writing the rules? I personally don't shirk away from some form of this. To investigate such questions fully, however, is beyond the scope of this series. If theistic underpinnings are not your cup of tea, I'm sure this could also be thought about simply in terms of human nature. The recognition that some behaviours are conductive to our good and some are destructive. If I engage in lying and stealing, for example, I have, as an unavoidable consequence, cut myself off from a sense of oneness and genuine connection with wider humanity. The same could be said to be true if I violate people's consent in any form. The questions we must all confront then are, do you know what this life is and how best to live it? Do you know with sufficient certainty to impose your position on others? If not, can you morally outsource this imposing to a third party? And, is there some sort of moral fabric to the universe or human nature? If you think so, what does that moral fabric have to say about consent and coercion? If there is indeed a moral fabric which makes coercive action inherently bad, perhaps the best thing we could do to uncover it would be to give it a twist. I'll give some examples of coercive actions and we'll examine their consequences. I'll specifically give examples where the intention was, more than less, to do good, as this will tell us if coercion is bad in and of itself, and not just that people intending to do harm is bad. Let's invite back Bob and Tom from the previous episode. Let's say Tom stole Bob's statue, but instead of keeping it for himself, he arranged for the statue to go on public display. Tom could contend that many more people would be made happy by it this way, so his actions achieve a good end, which justifies the means. Sure, Bob is unhappy, but that must be compared to all the people his statue has now made happy. This could be justified under a utilitarian approach, which pursues the greatest happiness for the greatest number. However noble Tom intends to be, we can identify flaws in his reasoning. We can still take issue with Tom, even if we don't dispute his right to deprive Bob of his property. Tom has done more than just ruin Bob's hobby for him. He has, in fact, torn at the very fabric of consent in society. The people enjoying Bob's work are not getting it for free. They are paying for it with the acceptance of a society where now anyone's right to own their own property can be violated for a perceived greater good. That's a very high price indeed although one that isn't as easy to see as the obvious gain of the publicly displayed statue. And think of the consequences. If Bob feels his property is insecure, he may become disheartened and cease to make any more statues. If everybody in wider society starts feeling the same way, 
maybe nothing gets produced anymore. It would seem then that the consequences to twisting the fabric of consent may be very high indeed. Let's now take another example, this one from the real world. I mentioned drug prohibition as one of the things that instantly struck me as a violation of the liberal consensual principle. I may devote more attention to this later on. Right now, I'll take a particular aspect of prohibition as an example, as the distance of history has made things clear regarding what is now universally agreed upon to have been a disaster. I am of course talking about the United States attempted alcohol prohibition of the 1920s. Prohibition, which lasted from 1921 to 33, wasn't simply imposed by puritanical killjoys intent on ruining everyone's fun. To understand the support a good portion of the American population gave to it, we must understand the astronomical level of alcohol consumption at that time, reckoned to be three times that of today, and the destructive effects this had on society. The prohibitionists believed they would put an end to men squandering their wages in saloons and being unable to feed their children. They believed domestic violence, so often fueled by alcohol, would be over. Prior to its abolition, even slavery was said to be unsustainable without alcohol. Many people truly believe that by utilising the legitimate, coercive power of the state to ban alcohol, they will be ushering in an era of heaven on earth. I say this to emphasise that alcohol posed no small problem to society, much like drugs are a massively destructive force today. My case is not based on downplaying that. Now let's look at the consequences of the idealistic prohibitionist policy. The alcohol economy continued to exist. It simply transferred into the hands of a criminal underworld. There, violence was used to protect the enormous profits that could now be made by alcohol's higher price. These gangs were known to support politicians who voted to keep the country dry, thereby protecting their revenue. Vast numbers of people were put out of work in the legitimate economy, and thousands ended up working as part of criminal organisations when they otherwise never would have done so. Alcohol became far more dangerous. Poisonous industrial alcohol was sold for consumption, leading to paralysis and death for thousands of people each year. As the policy was hard to enforce, draconian sentences were employed to discourage dealing in alcohol. Towards the end, it was possible to be locked away for life simply for selling beer. Prohibition led to a more invasive society. Selling alcohol and drugs is a victimless crime. I don't say that to dismiss the harms. I mean it in a very literal sense. Unlike being burgled or mugged, there is no victim to report the purchase of an illegal substance. This means that for the police to even find out about such transactions, they necessarily have to become more invasive in their surveillance efforts. There was a reallocation of policing resources away from crimes against person and property towards propping up prohibition. Perhaps most nefariously of all, Instead of being able to receive the help they needed, 
people genuinely suffering of addiction issues were criminalised, shutting down a consensual way of dealing with addiction problems. These points are by no means exhaustive, but I hope they've made my point that the road to hell can indeed be paved with good intentions, if those intentions are carried out by coercive means. Alcohol prohibition was of course abandoned, but perhaps the deeper lessons were not learned. Lessons regarding the consequences of twisting at the moral fabric of consent. I must note that, at this stage in my intellectual journey, whilst I saw certain things the state did as being coercive, it never occurred to me that the state itself was illegitimate or inherently bad. I had no problem whatsoever with state-provided healthcare and couldn't conceive of anyone objecting to such a thing. The same was true of the social security safety net. I wasn't even particularly cynical of the war powers, believing that western states had intervened in Iraq the first time and Yugoslavia for humanitarian reasons. My questioning the legitimacy of the state altogether came later. And that's where we'll be going next time. After looking some more at consent and coercion, I'll be addressing how all of this relates to the nation-state. Oh, and Tony Soprano will be making an appearance too. <laughs>